0: And welcome to the Coaches View podcast, a podcast hosted by professional football coaches and analysts. For those of you who love to look at the game in minute detail, my name's Harry Brooks and I'm joined once again by my strike partner, Richard Webster. Hello, Richard. Hi, mate. How are you? You good? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I have no idea why I said strike partner. I never played as a striker. I was always a fullback, um, but there you go. Oh, me neither, mate. I'll take it. I've not
1: exactly got a, a strong goal-scoring record, but I'll take it. Yeah, definitely.
0: Who would we be? What strike corner do you reckon we'd be if we played together? Oh,
1: I don't I don't like running. Um, okay. <laughs> so I'll do all the running and pressing? You'd have to do my running for me. I, I fancy myself as a creative talent mate, so I'm, I'm going, I'll am I'm i going. be Berbatov. How's that sound? Berbatov and I'll be Shane Long.
0: <laughs> what I say, as as a fallback, I'd actually reckon I've got probably a better goal scoring record than Shane Long. Not knocking Shane Long, but I do fancy myself. So there you go. <laughs> I think that's quite a potent strike for us
1: as well there, mate. You've I got think big, that's all right. big man, little man, somewhat creative, somewhat buzzing in and around.
0: I think that would have worked. Sometimes, mate, football is a simple game, as we both know. No, um I want to talk a little bit about our chat last week before we crack on with today's podcast. Thomas Gronermark, it was it was a brilliant chat, wasn't it? He's he's so yeah. fascinating to talk to.
1: Yeah, really good. And it's such an interesting aspect of the game. It's it's a, not a new aspect, I guess, but it's a new-ish aspect. So just a little bit different. Um, we've had some really great reaction from that particular podcast. Check it out if you can, guys. Liverpool's throwing coach. Well, uh, freelance throwing coach. He yeah. worked for many big clubs, Liverpool being one of them. And, I wasn't, uh, yeah, yeah, so. I,
0: no, I wasn't surprised by what he said. I mean, I fully expected him to say the things he did, but I was a little bit surprised at just how poor so many big teams were at the, the, the throwing, a huge part of the game. I mean, that, the stat game gave about Bayern Munich, the Bayern Munich, you know, I, I yeah. thought it's incredible how it's been ignored for so long.
1: And I think even, uh, he mentioned Tottenham. Uh, obviously, he was it doing did. a Liverpool, did. Liverpool-Tottenham game where Liverpool got a goal from a throw and I think Tottenham had a uh, 25% uh, success rate, you know, <laughs> retaining possession, which, you know, if he was in the field of play, it would be unacceptable. Um, or if he was just in a normal, let's say, a normal passage of play, would be unacceptable. I and, mean, you know, retaining only a quarter of the of your throwings, aren't you better off, it begs the question, aren't you better off just committing a foul throw? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Statistically, give it, give it
0: you'll, you'll
1: kick yeah. the ball more often anyway, so.
0: It's yeah. it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. I do wonder how far, though, and, you know, A throw-in specific coach is definitely an inclusion in the game that is very much needed. But I do wonder how far it will go. I mean, me and you have spoken before, haven't we, about having specialist positions or specialist coaches. I do wonder how far it will go or needs to go. I think uh, football moves quite slowly
1: uh, in terms of changes. So I can't see too too many radical changes. We've had some good ideas, like we said, about specialist positions and stuff like that, and borrowing uh, ideas and concepts from other teams. Uh, from other sports, but um, I don't think it'll go too far. I think more and more, more and more teams will go down that route in terms of maybe a throw-in specialist and look at that aspect. But football tends to move gradually, I think, with the changes. So I,
0: don't, I, I do wonder watch. if clubs may look even towards people like you know, you're, me, me and yourself, with like one to one specific coaches that come yeah. in and, and do certain technical practices, or if they will just leave that to their own staff or or their own players, because you hear a lot, obviously a lot of stories, and obviously players tell us that you know after training a lot of the time they just take it upon themselves to go and do the extra work. Whereas I'll, I'll wonder I you wonder know, if clubs my look to it, employ um, freelancing, one-to-one that's... coaches.
1: Yeah, clubs have been doing that for a while anyway. I know clubs have employed coaches to come in on short-term yeah. on a short-term basis, skills coaches, technical coaches. Have different names for them. Those sorts of academy level and pro level. But a lot yeah. of players, a lot of especially some of the bigger players um they have their own guys anyway though yeah they were, people are
0: surprised uh, when we tell them that aren't they they're very surprised when we tell them that you know even yeah. professionals at the highest level of the game that no they do extra work on the outside they're always like well surely surely the club can cover it and i'm always explaining to them no you really don't quite get it
1: <laughs> well it's really hard for clubs because when yeah. if if you're in a, a club that's succeeding or doing very well the schedule's really tough so uh, you could end up large chunks of the season you know, uh, Saturday, Wednesday, Sunday, or whatever it might be. So yeah. three fixtures, three fixtures a week for a lot of the players. So a lot of it's about fitness maintenance. So then, how are you supposed to hone your skills? How are you supposed to actually improve um, yeah. tangibly? And you hear stories about the dedicated players staying, staying after, behind uh, training afterwards. Uh, and generally, they're the ones who rise to the top. But there are guys out there who have their own nutritionists, have their own personal coach, yeah. have their own technical coach that they might have had before they were a professional player um so that's happening more and more
0: yeah i remember years and years ago when my first ever hero um in football was Edgar Davids um and i remember when he joined Tottenham Hotspur obviously being a Spurs fan i was over the moon but i was still a young kid at the time and we went down to the training ground um looking to get his signature first and only time i've ever done that uh, my uncle took me down me and my brother and um i was probably what seven or eight at the time and i remember very vividly all the Spurs players you know the likes of Robbie Keane Michael Carrick et cetera, Aaron Lennon. They all came out around the similar time. And I think we, I think my, I remember my uncle telling me it was two hours later
2: wow. when
0: Edgar Davids had left. Yeah. Um, and at the time, we were just getting really wound up with Edgar Davids because I was a yeah. young kid. I didn't understand. You know, I thought he was just being rude, not coming out to the fans. But obviously, being a coach now, you realize that actually, no, even though he'd already had his career and achieved incredible things, um, he still insisted on staying extra to do a lot more work. Yeah. And I thought, Looking back to it, I thought that was incredible. And really, and as you said, you know, you can always tell the ones—it's—it's it's clear as not and day—the ones that do the extra work.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that continuous development and uh, always striving to better yourself is—it's um, an important aspect, mate. Especially when you're talking about the the top level of the game, professional athletes. And I think that's the subject we're gonna we're gonna talk hopefully with our our guests, uh, yes. a little bit
0: Later on. Yeah. Well, speaking of our guests today, we've we've got another fantastic guest lined up. Uh, a QPR foundation phase lead uh, called Manisha Taylor, MBE. Um, but, you know, being a QPR coach, it's an incredible thing, but it barely scratches the surface of what she's achieved, doesn't it?
1: No, she's, her CV's absolutely ridiculous. So it's yeah. going to be fascinating to talk to her about the many things she's done. She's she's an author. She's an MBE, like you said. She's, yeah. she's becoming well-known now in the field of mental health and wellbeing and, and that sort of aspect of the game, as well as, Obviously, achieving big things at a, a big club like QPR and a professional at a professional level. So it's going to be fascinating to hear yeah. her story and yeah, and her background and everything. Yeah, like
0: that. we have a good relationship with QPR, don't we? So we've liaised with Manisha quite a few times in the past, and yeah, she's absolutely fantastic. And and I can't wait to speak to her. And you know what? Should we just get her in? Let's do it, mate. Let's get Let's it on. Let's do it. So we are delighted to welcome Manisha Taylor, MBE. Manisha, thanks for coming on. How are you?
3: Yeah no thanks for asking me I'm good thank you uh, enjoying no. enjoying some downtime but yeah good
0: Yeah no the pleasure is all ours the pleasure's all ours so um I spoke to you earlier today um and to be honest I don't really know where to start because you do so many different things um that are so admirable it's it's just incredible so uh, the best place to start is probably to talk about you know your your role in football as well as mental health so for our listeners, would you be able to give a brief overview um in terms of some of the projects you do um and how that entails with the football side of things as well
3: yeah sure so um my my current role is i'm foundation phase lead at qPR at the academy uh under under chris Ramsey but before I kind of I, I delve into that, I think um what I'll do is just give a snapshot of how kind of how how I got there and i I don't come from football first so uh, my background's in primary education. So I specialised in uh, early childhood education. So I did a, a BA in education. And initi- for me, it was I loved working with uh, all the idea of working with young people. And when I was growing up, there were very few uh, female role models in football. And there wasn't a clear pathway as we see it now. So it's great now. The women's games evolved. Um, there's a lot more opportunities through county FAs, through regional talent clubs uh, for like, girls to take part in football. Whereas, well, I mean, I- I'll be 40 this year. So it definitely, in the 80s, we- we- my love of football started when I was nine. I would be one of very few girls playing football. And then on top of that, being I- I've, um, I'm British Asian of Indian heritage and growing up, in a in a south asian household although my mum and dad were quite liberal um and sport was huge in terms of influence in in the house and, and not just football it was you know cricket um me and my dad and my bro- twin brother we played pool and snooker um and squash so we were quite a sporty family but for my mum she the, the attachment of football and me being Indian, um, and how that would be perceived on the family, uh, and, sorry, and, and the wider community was, was quite huge with mm. regards to culture. Yeah. So uh, I remember when I was nine, um, my best friend Jenna, so my best friend Jenna, uh, we went to the same primary school, and she played for Barnet, so, which is my, I live in I live in the borough of Barnet. So that would have been our closest, like, local um elite team I would say and she said to me one day oh why don't you come we've got trials so her mum spoke to my mum, and my mum said look if you can if you can take her then no problem so anyway I went and and I got in and then I thought oh god now I'm gonna have to tell my mum that I've actually got in <laughs> like, what do you now, what, do, what do I now do I just went there because you know me, me and Jenna love playing football and that's pretty much what we looked forward to when we were at school. And, you know, I explained that, oh, this is what it was like. And, you know, did this. And and I'm left, I'm, I'm, comp- I'm left-sided. And I'm so left-sided that I, I bought a sensible um, during lockdown to get me better using my right side. Oh,
2: um, I love
3: it. But I'll, I'll come, so I can't, can't come on to that um, later. <laughs> but, you know, it... So I remember, like saying, there was this one story, and I was really proud of that. Oh, we got it. He got he got me to cut him, you know, um, on the right, and then I was able to take it on my left, and I scored. And then she said, "Okay, um, but what now?" And I said, "Well, <laughs> I've got in, so can I go?" And the answer was pretty much, "Well, who's going to take you?" And and that was that. Really, it was. Yeah. it The there was, you know, I think lots of contributing factors. Um, culture was one of them. Uh, commitment and being able to to manage uh, a weekend of now committing to taking me to training was another, especially when it was a walking distance you know, and it wasn't something that was just around the corner um, and I definitely as a nine year old wouldn't have been allowed to get on the bus on my own and travel yeah. so that was that and I just played at school and I remember going to secondary school and the first thing I asked my PE teacher was why don't you have a girls football team and mm. the answer really was that we actually haven't got enough interest so if we if we can find more girls to build a team then i'll be more than happy to do it and throughout the duration of my secondary school years that was pretty much what it was like that
0: yeah. you would
3: be one of few um, and then again like i said you know with regards to the culture and the taboo around stereotypically uh jobs that south asians traditionally go into Football definitely wasn't one of them. And if you're uh, a female and you're South Asian, then, there you know, there's a greater taboo around yeah. football um, attached to that. So I, I soon realised that, you know, being a player was... It, it was almost not in my lifetime. And probably maybe, you know, had I been born generations after, with the female game now a lot more evolved, I think that... There's a lot more uh, governing bodies doing great work around uh, diversity and using role models that we do have. Um, maybe that might have been different for me. Yeah. So I then thought, okay, well, you know, I'll play football, you know, grassroots and as recreation and just for fun. And then found um, a love of working with young people through a GCSE I did in child development. And then took the teaching route thereafter. So I became uh, a primary school teacher uh, after finishing uni. And in terms of, you know, football, what I found was that it, early, so I qualified in 2001 and in around that time in, in primary schools, and I worked across different boroughs and it was a, a, a pretty similar thing um, in the duration of those years where there was a real lack of, resource for young people to take part in football activities so at lunchtime or after school and one of the reasons for that uh, was that unless you're a specialist and you're trained in that area you're pretty much just going to do what you think is best so as an example i loved football but i wasn't a football coach I just loved mm. football and I specialized right. in early childhood education. So I did a BA in education. So in terms of your your learning and your education around PE and teaching PE, it's really minimum.
4: Yeah. Mm. Now
3: I, I understand that the degrees and the qualification must have evolved now and, and what's different now and I think it's great is that you have uh, qualifications now where they've evolved. So there's you can take degrees and other um uh, like vocational courses on becoming a coach in different sports and you'll become better equipped in terms of knowledge than maybe somebody like myself who who wouldn't have had that at that time Sure. so, so it, i i asked oh you know can i set up a, an after school club can i do lunchtime clubs and the answer was pretty much yes but I just did, if I'm honest, I did what I thought was best. So there I was in 2002, in, in the move schools, 2002, I was working actually in a private school, a Hindu faith school, and it would have been, that was unheard of. I mean, fortunately for me, the head teacher, Mr. Raja, because it was, you know, it, I, I, he was a massive Leicester City fan. So <laughs> he was all for things being innovative. And, be, and, and and all for forward thinking and, and having projects like this. So he said, yeah, go for it. You know, get, what's the worst that's going to happen? Brilliant. And it was, it was really difficult because the challenges were trying to, you're trying to almost uh, adapt and evolve mindsets. Yeah. And this was an all Hindu faith school. So traditionally, um, and it's not conforming to the stereotype but it almost is in a way because a lot of them played cricket and loved cricket. Right. And that's great. But when you want to implement, I guess, across any industries, any form of change or something that somebody perceives is is new, uh, unless you get buy-in from those who might resonate with the sport or people who might be more open-minded and, and welcoming of new ideas, You've just got to persist and you've just got to keep going with it Um, with the hope that eventually they can see the impact and therefore they might, you know, you can then create greater buy-in from that. So I'd be out there in the playground, you know, getting the, initially it was looking at getting the boys involved because if I'm honest, it was a tough, that was a tough task and then it was with the girls and then. We, you know, I had uh, enough boys to, to have a club, and then I managed to get some girls involved. And a lot of the girls were inspired by having a female that equally liked the sport. And right. I think that role modelling is really important. Um, yeah. And it's not always that you have to see people like you to be like, you know, to for you to be inspired by. But uh, but it's it, it definitely it can help and in this in, in this example it did and and when i you know grew, i i was in i worked in uh, education full time for for 10 years before i took the career change and across the different schools that i worked in uh, it was pretty it was pretty similar now of course in the latter part so i took a career change in 2011 um, pe was was evolving um there was a lot more um support for schools with Uh, how to educate and upskill teachers on how to teach physical education. I think that that there was greater projects of governing bodies where you you can use, you know, link in with FA Learning, with county FAs, with other external organisations who are better equipped in football to come and deliver. And that's how I met Rachel Yankee. So I was working, one of my remits, in one of the schools was um, overseeing extended school activities and Rachel Yankee worked in Brent and delivered some of the the football activity within that school so we spoke and she she informed me that there are coaching qualifications available but I had no idea that you could go and get coaching badges but Mm then again how would you know unless you're involved in the field or you have friends or connections with people who were involved in that sphere? you only know what you know sure so i only knew what i knew within teaching and education and football was just uh, a love and passion but i didn't know coaches or people who had actually gone down that pathway until i met rachel and um, you know, she, she kind of said, go on the County FA website and it's called a level one and 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 pretty much from then did my level one in 2010. And I was then signposted straight away to do my level two and got some fantastic help from Alex Welsh at London FA, who put me on the female development program, and and Corey Donahue. And that opened my eyes into other what else is out there. Um and, and how you can use teaching as, as being a transferable skill set. And you can have knowledge of learning and how young players or how you know, children learn. But it was then upskilling myself and developing the subject knowledge that you also need, because you need to have the subject knowledge to teach, but you also need to know how to teach and disseminate information so that players learn. So. Um, the bad news, I think, really helped me with that. And then while I was still teaching, I was doing grassroots coaching with Rachel at her grassroots club, uh, which was great because, you know, all we had was was grass. And you would have more than 30 kids. I had a range of under sevens, under eights and under nines. You know, it, you wouldn't really know who's coming and who's not coming. Um, it You'd be there. Before the session started, to pick up the dog mess and to scoop things up and do a walk <laughs> yeah, yeah. and make sure uh, you know make sure that things were safe for them to for them to have a great time for the two hours that they were with you. But that's real coaching, and if you can work in those environments and I feel um, manage a group and create a learning environment that lets them grow and allows them to to learn and get better then you can take that, those skills and that knowledge base anywhere. Um, and then just personal circumstance, really, that uh, steered me to coming out of working full-time, which was around uh, my brother and, and my mum. So I became a young carer when I was 18, uh, along with my family. Um, unfortunately, my brother, when he was in school, was really badly bullied. And as a result of trauma, and um and several horrible things that he went through as a young person he became depressed which then led to schizophrenia he was sectioned um for a period of time and that was a really difficult time for for me and and everybody with how we adjust and bearing in mind my sister at the time was only 5 because there's a big age gap between us and at the same time my mum had a triple heart bypass and I was trying to complete my master's in leadership and I just felt there was too much going on. All at once. Yeah. It was, there was too much. Um, and although it was, it was a number of years where, you know, with my brother's illness, but it was, I just, you know, I, I felt I, I needed the time to be able to just, uh, make, reflect, hand in my dissertation, manage how I'm feeling and manage things at home. And then with the view of going back into school uh, full time. So I qualified, um, I passed my training to be a head teacher. So for me, the view was, I'll come out for a school term. So I ended my contract August 2011 and felt January 2012, I would now perhaps go into a role where I could lead my own school and have sport as as a real focus in helping children learn and develop anyhow that didn't happen because the beauty of networking is that the people i'd networked with and connected with while i was teaching uh, once they were got to know that i'm now not working full time it was they were just you know got getting, getting me involved in projects so uh, i was getting getting more involved with working with rachel i then was on the other side of um, being able to go in and deliver the ppa cover as opposed to before when i'd be the one uh organizing the ppa cover like mm. this time i was the one that was going in during the lunchtime, and i'd be all or, or you know after school i was delivering the football sessions i helped rachel with her football program to evolve and develop uh, curriculum plans and and other projects and other educational projects uh, also got involved with with that part of things um at Gibbons Records, at her grassroots club. And then pretty much from then on, just found myself uh, working in about four or five different jobs to make ends meet because I I felt so much more connected with football. And that connection was then bringing me back to the connection with my brother. So what I didn't mention was my brother's condition is, is very unique. In the sense that he only speaks verbally to the voices he hears, but he doesn't articulate verbally to, to us um, otherwise. So right. that's been that's been like that for, for for about fifteen years. So what we have to do is adapt, and we have to sense and know and use other forms of communication to engage with him. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and that also I feel. Um, made me adapt and evolve when I was teaching. And then when I was coaching with regards to how you cater for different people yeah,
4: and
2: it definitely yeah.
3: opened my eyes on, um, different ways of learning. Sure. So, sure. um, yeah, so he, you know, like I said, with, because his condition was, was, is, is, is so unique. What we, y- you have to, you have to manage that, um, One in the way that you see fit, but one in the way that is going to benefit him. And football was a tool for me of connecting with him. And then I found myself um, delving more into opportunities that might be available for helping him and people, adults like him. And one of those was through linking with Wingate and Finchley, which is my local non-league club and we started a project for adults with mental health and disability with the support of Anwar Odin at Fans for Diversity yeah. um, and, and some support from the FA and Middlesex County FA, uh, which was great because it meant that my brother could get involved, but it also meant other adults like him within the borough could could uh, benefit too. And one of the key aspects to the work was liaison with care workers because when we're thinking about sustainability and, and and a lot of you know through the years the the experience that myself and my family have had working with multiple agencies uh, social workers psychiatr you know psychiatric doctors uh the care workers that he has through through the agency that we that we uh, work with it's important that they also understand and are equipped with a wider toolbox to best engage with the person that they're working with. And yeah. physical activity is a form of doing that. And I found the benefits of physical activity um, in helping adults with mental health as a way of you know, being positive with social interactions. Um, it's you know, possibly in, in endorphins with, uh, with any activity with regards to you know, sport and, and physical exercise it was it was a safe environment to allow them just to to engage uh there were people who were you know within within the you know within the environment and within the space that it wasn't as though anybody felt excluded and uh and, and that's what you want and that's what made it so great and unfortunately um because of the lack of funding we've had to stop the project over the last year but Right. It's definitely something we'd like to continue in the future, but just the point on um, I wanted to make around working with, the, with with the care workers was that they I found that they developed through the through the time in the duration of the project with how to find other ways of connecting with the people that they work with.
0: Right. And, yeah. and
3: it's hard because I've seen it. You know, the amount of that. There's been a number of uh, care workers that have worked with my brother over the last. 22 years hmm. and the most important thing is it's consistency and that would be for 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 anybody with uh, vulnerabilities or or young people that you 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 want the people if you're working in close contact with somebody uh, consistency is important because yeah. that allows you to build a relationship and rapport and, and, tr- and mutual trust so it like you know the working with and engaging with the the care workers was was a big part of the work and I'm I'm pleased that they equally benefited uh, from that and as my journey went on in 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 the world of football um, the mental health work actually de- uh, developed into various projects so with Wingate being one of them and then Child in Mind been another, which is um, a book that I published uh, in 2018. And it's a makeup of, a, of session ideas uh, attached with stories, poems, scenario cards, uh, role play activities that help youth professionals. So that could be teachers. It might be coaches. It might be other educators um, to help young people engage with different aspects of mental health and a right. lot of those activities and sessions have come from my experiences of teaching so things that i would have tried uh my experiences of working with external agencies so such as sure racism the red card for instance and and uh, delivering some of their outreach work um and, and doing some and continuing to do supply teaching because up until me becoming full-time at qpr which was in 2000 and 18 actually, it, it, it 2000 the summer of 2018, I was part time at the club, mm. which meant that I was still doing four or five other jobs mm. to to to, uh, to to earn money, and with the view of I want to keep connected with football because it connects me to something my brother really loved and enjoyed. I want to continue doing all this work because it allows me uh, a form of channeling my frustrations around what's oh, yeah. happened because I think even though it's been more than two decades, it you don't it you don't heal um, no, completely. Yeah. And but eighteen years of our lives, we've done everything together, and then yeah. with the click of a finger, now you can't.
0: It's all changed. It's,
3: it's all changed, yeah, and I and b- because I see it every day, I live it every day, um it but there's still reminders of things that we used to share and what we used to do and how different yeah, things course. are now, and look you become a lot more adaptable and and you evolve as a person uh in how you live your life, but it it's still there, and you still have the hope, and I think that's what drives me is and that's what drives you know my family and in in the you're inspired by hope with the view that he wasn't always like this. Therefore no. we've got to keep trying to help him manage so that he can eventually lead an independent life again. Mm. Um, so that drives me to continue to do all this work because, you know, I've had various conversations with people around like work ethic and, you know, I've been, called a workaholic and a perfectionist yeah. but I just you know I would term it as um as I, I'm I'm relentless with how I how I work I I am ambitious but I think that ambitious uh, having ambition is great because um everyone should be allowed to dream I think yeah. uh, I think dreaming is healthy
2: yeah, um, sure.
3: whether you're a child or an adult yeah but it's also a form and a tool me to channel how I feel, and I have a, an inspiration for that. Mm. So I found this, I found work and engaging in in work uh, as as a you know as a tool for helping me with my mental health and how how I feel with the situation.
1: Yeah. Almost almost uh, therapeutic in a way.
3: Yeah, definitely. And 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 in that respect, I don't see it as work.
1: And right. Yeah. And
3: I thrive on I thrive on challenges, and yeah. I, perhaps that's come from what I've experienced. Because you know, uh, there, there's some stories I've shared about my brother, um, and and I did it in the and I shared it in the forward of my book, where you know his condition was was so bad that he didn't recognise any of us. He didn't know oh. who we were. He, he didn't know who he was. He didn't recognise his surroundings. He was kidnapped by his bullies and just oh. left missing for three days. And there's, you know, some some things that you would not wish upon anyone. Um, and th- these, you know, these things, I, I, what I, I didn't go and seek counselling. I didn't go and share this with anybody at, in in the in the early years of when this was happening, because right. um, it was. You're, st- I'm still trying to understand what's going yeah. on. You know i'm still trying to comprehend all these changes and i'm starting university he was supposed to be starting university and my sister's only five or six so there's a number of things that you know you think oh well should i have spoken to somebody but but it's quite easy saying that and then you think you reflect and you look back and you go well why didn't i actually there was there were multiple factors there was so much going on and I felt the best thing for me to do was to um was to be bold and 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 not put it to the side but
4: yeah
3: uh find a way of managing it and and being able to manage it really meant that I had to be focused so it was just keeping focused on uh what was important at the time and what needed to be done and that was based around making sure that. I was okay, my mum was okay, Like my dad equally, you know, my dad and my sister. So if, we are, if we're healthy and we're in a positive frame of mind, we can help my brother
2: yeah. and mm, we yeah. can
3: help each other. But if we're not, that gets disrupted. So it, 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 it meant that if, for example, I was having a bad day or I was feeling low, I had my mum to lean on and vice versa. Mm, yeah. And and it became very much sharing things with, with my family um as a tool for sharing and being open and talking, uh, which you know, which is important and, and, and that's healthy too. So
2: mm.
3: I I just found that I I wanted to do all the things maybe that my brother would have loved to have done or yeah. I, I view it that when and, and I do see it as a when he when he does make recovery and he is independent that how proud he would be of you know work me being in football and, and working yeah. in football and and having involved all these projects and and the other thing for me also was that i also recognize how difficult it it will be for him when mm. he makes a full recovery in terms of jobs so me setting up like swagalicious limited yeah it wasn't just about me it was i will set this up so that when he makes a full recovery, here you go. You, there you go. You deal with it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: So I
0: mean, just, I, sorry. No, no, no. I'm just inca- captivated by listening to you speak. It's honestly, it's really inspiring, and yeah, I think it's incredibly impressive that you know that the, the things that you you and your family have had to go through and have gone through, but yet you've managed to to use it as inspiration to almost almost use it as inspiration to go and and to put good back into the world and whilst also still following your dreams, I think it's incredible to be honest.
3: I think what I tell you, my biggest learning has been, cause I've gone through a rollercoaster of emotions in, in the time and I'd be naive to say that I was always being positive and that I was always seeing it as, okay, I can, you know, I, I can persist and um, I can be resilient because I wasn't always like that. And, and I think it's, uh, it, that's okay. And I'm, I'm, yeah. I can see that now and I accept that actually that's okay. There was a time where I didn't want to be at home. I, I was I was so angry. I was so upset. I, mm. I couldn't understand how people could behave in that way. Yeah. I just I couldn't understand it. And I thought to, to not have that compassion and that empathy for, for, for how you're, you know, for, for the impact of your behaviours, I couldn't comprehend it. And I thought um, I, I don't want to be in the environment and for me that environment was being in the house I didn't want to be in the house just yeah. because I was so angry and when he went to um when he was sectioned and he was in the hospital it, I didn't want to go there because yeah. I couldn't accept that my brother was there mm. and I couldn't accept that he's, he's got that he's he's got to mental health condition I couldn't accept it mm. and my 21st I remember our 21st um was spent in the psychiatric unit and my mum's, you know, she got the cake and, and, and I understand what she was doing, which was trying to make it as normal as possible. Yeah. But the selfish part of me said, it's not, this is not normal. Mm. He I, I, doesn't know who I am. You, you know, you want us to blow out the candles and, and you want it to be great, but I don't. It, I'm not feeling great. And all I wanted to do was just cry. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time crying um to the point where I remember my mum said to me that she was so worried because I would cry every night and the only difference is is I cry less but because when you see it every day and you live with it every day I'll go back to the hope factor that I will not accept this is our lives for the rest of our lives and I, I refuse to accept that and i think because uh because my mum and my family are like that too it it motivates all of us to do everything that we can to get him leading an independent life and then yeah. that would be a story that we could share because that can help other people yeah but, but from our point of view it's it's very much about doing what we feel is best and it would never be i wouldn't say that I wouldn't enforce this on anybody. I I made a commitment when my brother Mm. became, uh, when we were 18 and his illness deteriorated over the years, I made a commitment to my family. And that commitment sees me now to 40 and traditionally uh, very much against the norm of a typical South Asian woman at 40 where Mm. I'm living at home, not married. I don't have kids. Um, And that goes against the never mind working in football and taking a career change and all and you know I took a drastic pay cut from yeah. I was a deputy head uh, working in you know in in a large school and to to then freelancing and and trying to make ends meet doing five jobs yes it was a choice and I accept mm. that I chose to do that um, but it was still challenging. choice or no choice that was so hard um and it you know the the character traits that you build from those experiences will mold you as a person and it's definitely shaped my my thinking so Hmm. i accept there may be some things that perhaps i might have wanted to do uh as an adult or in my adult life, yeah. I may not be able to do those. But do you know what? If my sister can do it, then, you know, and she can, if she, she, she you know, she's with a partner, she's living with her partner and I, I, it'll be great for her to get married. It'll be great mm. for her to have kids. And I, and I feel content and happy about that because mm. I made a choice of committing to my family and alongside that, also being able to, be ambitious and and fulfil, initially what were the dreams of my brother, actually fulfilled dreams now that are mine.
0: Yeah, and yeah. the achievements you've you've accomplished are just uh, just incredible. I mean, first of all, agree, really, you, yeah. you are you, you're an MBE, which is just incredible, an incredible achievement, something you must be incredibly proud of. Um, as you said, you're the foundation phase lead at QPR. You're the director of uh, and uh, which we'll talk about in a bit. You're an author. You've won awards. Um, you're one of the few Asian women to hold the UEFA b license. It's just what you've achieved is is beyond incredible. Um you must be so proud of it all um and what you have achieved to, despite you know the the things you've had to go through.
3: yeah, no um I, I really am and it I think i i what I struggle with uh, and this is a developmental of mine is i I struggle with the that whole concept of feeling proud and and accepting that. Wow, this is you know this is really great, because yeah. I'm always looking at no, that's not good enough, I need to do more no, I need yeah. to carry on, I need to learn more, yeah. whereas I know what I need to get better at, and I don't know whether I don't know whether it's still because i ha- still have so much rush I have so much frustration in me still right that it my let out is right what next? Okay. To okay oh, I'm yeah. of doing that. Yep. Yeah, now what next? And that's mm-hmm. my kind of, that's my let out, but I do, you know, my mum, it, when I look at my mum and she sees that those particular, we have to remember, you know, when we, when we talk about mental health um, and then we talk about uh, career pathways that are not, are not traditional. Yeah. Um, there was a lot to be said when I decided to take a career change and There was uh, a lot to be said when my brother became unwell from the community. And it was really difficult for my mum because she would have to listen to it. You know, there were awful things that were said about who's going to want to marry your daughter now because of the way that my brother is and and some really horrible, nasty things that uh, because of mentality and mindset, And yes, this was in the early stages of when my brother became unwell, but there's still a lot more work to be done around taboo and stigma in mental health with uh, South Asian communities.
0: Right, And there's still
3: a lot more work to be done when it comes to career pathways and and, and, uh, engaging in careers that may not be so traditional.
0: Do you think there's a lot more to be done with regards to mental health in football? I mean, obviously, we've made a lot of inroads, you know. These days, we hear it's getting a lot of airtime now. Mental health week, etc. And but, do you still think there's a long way to go with mental health in football?
3: I think what needs to happen now is, like you said, I think what's great is governing bodies uh, in football uh, and and there's governing bodies outside of football who are generating a lot more discussion around the subject, and I think that's great, and that needs to continue, but. It really needs people of influence and and position of power. So that could be your, you know, the footballers and the athletes who have following. People will listen to them. Yeah. So it needs more. It needs them. I feel now to, to stand up and 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 talk about their experiences without being afraid.
2: Sure. And the sure. more that
3: they do that, the more I think governing bodies will have
1: no choice but to listen do you see that, that there's been progress then because obviously there's there's um there has been a lot recently in terms of um it getting more airtime like harry says with the uh, mental health awareness week and and lots of prominent people have come out and started to talk about it and there's perhaps a, a bit less of a stigma um in talking about mental health issues um but if we look at uh, if we look Uh, what's happening now in America with the protests about um, you know the problems they've got with racism and and Black Lives Matter you know you could argue that uh, we see these things we we see these things crop up and um, you know kick racism out of football and and things like that kick it out campaign they've been going for a long time Um, and, and it seems to be making progress but slow progress so if we look at the 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 troubles in America at the moment with Black Lives Matter and all of, all of the things, all of the fallout that's happening there. Um, and we're looking then, if we compare that to uh, mental health awareness, I agree that there's been progress. And, and the first step is to get more and more people talking about it and more prominent people talking about it. But do you think sometimes we're slow to progress? Because the first stage is to talk about these things, but then is there actually going to be any tangible work done, um, let's say, by clubs? At club level, um, or would you like to see more than, or do you believe we're already making steps in the right direction?
3: I think that we've always, as a country, uh, I, I think that we've always been quite slow in in getting things uh, off the ground. Yeah. And if we look at how football has evolved, that's also evolved very slowly. Yes. And but whether you know, and and like the women's game and how the women's games evolved is is a big example of that and there is still a long way to go with um with not necessarily getting a, getting it on equal par of the men's game mm. but uh, but making sure that it does receive the credit that it deserves within its yeah. own right and with regards to mental health i think having um prince william and um the the, the work being done by the royal foundation and using prominent people of like high esteem uh, to promote the message is is really important because like i said that if you have people in positions of influence and power they can yeah. help to create change a lot quicker
1: yeah uh, i was interested earlier you spoke about role modeling and with your background and your you know circumstances yourself being a, a south asian uh, female football coach you 'll be a role model to a lot of a lot of young females, a lot of Asians going into football hopefully obviously we 're seeing the growth in the women 's game, which is fantastic and there 's more and more role models uh in the women 's game, which is a brilliant thing for everyone to see and we 've seen the growth thereafter. Do you believe then that we need uh, really prominent role models in the area of the field of of mental health and mental well being to start speaking out like role models across across the game
3: I definitely I think that um role models can help in- inspire and engage other people to feel that they're not alone. Mm. So the documentary I saw recently with Prince William and it had, for example, Marvin Sordell sharing his story. That's great and that's fantastic. And, and it's, mm. it almost saddens you that he had to go through that and to the point where he felt he could no longer play. But that story hopefully will inspire somebody else who may be feeling in a sim, you know, who may be able to resonate with that, or feeling in a similar situation, that actually um, uh, there are people I can talk to, and I'm not alone. That he 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 was feeling just like me. Yeah. So I think the ro- role modelling is really important. I think the more that prominent and uh, uh, um, influential people start sharing their stories and Becoming advocates advocate of positive mental health and well-being um the more people will open up and the more they will go and seek help
2: mm.
3: I, I think that the work the governing bodies are doing like you know like I said with, with with the FA uh is is definitely helping with that so I sat on um the mental health steering group with the FA with um Uh, with Alex Welsh and and others and Alex Welsh he's the chief exec at London Plainsville Foundation and they do some fantastic work through coping through football Mm. um, and using that project to uh, engage with adults with mental health and provide them with a safe environment to to take part in football and and other activities and, and other forms of education and as a as a result of being on that group we were able to contribute to a mental health guidance that is for coaches and available as a downloadable PDF for anybody to to, to be into and have a look at. So it, I can see from that that the FA are definitely trying and are actively yeah. trying to put things in place to to help provide some education to people. But once this education is out there. It now needs individuals to continue the work. So like you mentioned about Black Lives Matter, that, that just cannot be for a day. Yeah, it, exactly. Similar to any form of inequality or unfairness, generally. Mm. It, we have to uh, respect, tolerance, empathy has to be embedded in your values in how you live your life. So if you go about your daily business in that way, you will be at being an, you will be an advocate for whether it's black lives matter whether it's for uh lgbt whether it's for gender or whatever it might be whether it's for mental yeah.
2: health
3: so and that will just become ingrained in you because it's actually part of how you live your life it's not just for a day and i think for me the question uh, to ask is what happens after black lives matter what happens yeah. uh after this mental health documentary that Mm. does do the individuals within the world take the responsibility to be active in advocating. Yeah, I guess
1: what we want to see is lasting change, isn't it? Uh, An actual, an effect that that, that has a a far region or progress uh, uh, more than anything else um, is is the key, isn't it? I want to ask you um, as well about, obviously you've got this role with uh, Queens Park Rangers now, which is, you know, big football club with a huge history and you're, you know, you're part of the professional side of the game now, which is fantastic At the in the youth Academy. And myself and Harry, we work with young players all of the time. So we run an independent Academy that will play against uh, professional teams and just trying to help young people to, to reach their potential. So I've worked in and around football for oh, a long time now, I guess about 20 years or coming up to 20 years um, in all sorts of different, uh, different levels. Um, with your with your expertise or your knowledge and experience let's say and the work you've done on different projects in in mental health and wellness and well-being what challenges do you see um for academy players because that's uh, and in particular during this time so football itself i've often thought this and we work like i say closely with young players from sort of 7 up to up to well, up to everything really 22 23 your adulthood um and it's a very challenging environment anyway uh, and and you'll be around a lot of young people that are trying to be very driven. They'll be trying to cha- uh, achieve something which is you know incredible, you know to to drive themselves on and hopefully become a professional athlete. Uh, at the same time as trying to have a rounded uh, life <laughs> and childhood, um, at the same time as having the pressures of of school and everything else and just normal growing up. And now we add on top of that this unique experience we're all going through of isolation and lockdown obviously that's coming to an end slowly slowly by the looks of things is there's, there's an easing at the moment but do you think there's any particular challenges or do you think mental health issues are gonna uh, are really gonna spike and come to the forefront now given uh, the experience we're going through with the pandemic
3: i think that um mental health conditions and uh, well-being generally will be more prevalent now than ever before. Especially if you think about, like you said, that you've got young people that have been out of structure, out Mm. of routine for a number of months now. Mm. As well as being out of routine, their schooling is also disrupted in addition to their football. Um, They've been in and out of school, homeschooled, and for some, that's been proven to be really challenging because um, of their, their, their home environment. And, and yeah. that can differ from player, you know, from player to player. You might have some that are living in a flat. You might have some that are living in a larger home. So those who are in, living in a more confined space will definitely be feeling a lot different to when, uh, when they're at school. And in comparison to when you know those who live and have the, a larger space, you may have some who um, who have experienced bereavement either through directly through their families or through people that they know. You may have parents and and guardians who have unfortunately, because of the circumstance, have lost their jobs, and that can put pressure on the family as a whole. Yeah. So there are there are a number of things that I think are going to be affecting young people. And then on top of that, those who are in academies would have had uh, the pressure of if they're in a retained release year, what's going to happen yeah. to me? Sure. And re- actually, regardless of whether you're in a retained release year, uh, how is my progress going to be impacted or affected? Because it's also uh, for everybody, acknowledging and understanding that the individual Uh, circumstance will differ for each player so those who live in a flat as an example may not have a large space to be able to practice some of the skills that Mm. they may have been asked to do or just independently practice the skills just purely because they haven't got the space to do it
2: yeah
3: that doesn't mean to say that they have a a lesser work ethic it's 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 it's, i guess it's I think Personal having a lot more empathy. It? It, it, yeah. So it's going to, I think it's going to require um, a lot more empathy and greater understanding around holistic player development. And I think as a result, there'll be challenges for both coaches and players because you've yeah. got players who would have been going through all of those contributing factors. We still don't know when we're returning completely.
1: Exactly.
3: So they would have mm. missed more football than they would have done during off season. Yeah. That's going to have an impact on what your training practice and your session design looks like when you come back.
1: And it's a it challenging is- environment anyway. I mean, these are these are young people that are trying to. They've already done incredibly well to reach uh, the level of, uh, let's say, QPR's academy or whatever academy might be. So they're already achieving something um, special by um by being involved um so it, it's not a you know th- there are challenges uh week after week in terms of having to maintain your performance levels and, and training and developing and uh, to keep improving so to have this on top of it i, I think it can only cause it is going to cause a, a lot more challenges I, I agree with you as well for the coaching as well no doubt um in how to manage those challenges for the bench groups and how to manage the the re-entry into um, some form of structured training.
0: So with the players we work with at ARA Academies, um, they tell us um, that you know clubs have set them technical practices to be doing while they're at home. Um, do you think clubs could perhaps do more to, or do you think clubs need to at least uh, make sure that they keep on top of the mental well-being of their players during this time as well? Because obviously... You know they can't have any contact at the moment, so I'm sure that when training restarts, then that's something they'll be taking care of. But do you think clubs need to make sure they keep on top of the mental well-being of their players during this time as well?
3: Yeah, I do. But I also think that there's the sensitivity uh, around around that base. I think that it's also difficult when uh, you don't have direct contact with the player. So depending on the age of the player, your your, your main contact's going to be the parents. Yeah. And um, so I think that it, in terms of keeping connected and, and keeping engaged, it's, it's making sure that we, we have open dialogue and, and continue to build relationships with the parents and the players during this time and ensure that uh, they have a safety net so that when they do return, it's about reinforcing those messages, ensuring that the players don't feel Uh, Any fear of coming back, and one of that fears might be around. Well, I didn't really practice my juggling as much because I didn't (laughs) have the space to do it. I'm not good, you know. That these fears that they are going to have. What as coaches, what we can do is is try and within our limitations manage that effectively, so that the kids, when they do come back, feel as though. they're that they're not going to be judged negatively because of you know because of the fact that they haven't been there so i think managing that is going to be it's going to be a challenge uh, for coaches because when the, when the players do come back like i said that they would have been away for a considerable amount of time so it's really going to be thinking about uh, your own ethos and your own values and is that centered around the player? Is that centered around making sure that you have a secure learning environment uh, mm. that that engages them, that yes, challenges them, but you know allows them to, to take risks without a fear of failure, that, uh, that, and that makes sure that they know that through open dialogue and discussion, that it's safe for them to come and speak to people if they're feeling sad or upset about yeah. something. Uh, and, you know, and that they talk about the things that matter to them or, or perhaps even share things that um, that they may have experienced, you know, during during the time that they've been away. And that they know it's OK to do that. So I think the learning environment when they return is going to be really important. And and while the kids and the players are away, it's ensuring that there is dialogue with the parents and the players determined by how old they are in sure. ensuring that they know that it's okay. And I think that the sa- the safety uh, net part of it's going to be uh, important with regards to how they're feeling and their emotions and their well-being.
0: Definitely. Definitely. One person, um, slight change of topic that I know um, is a big inspiration for you and has been a mentor for you is, is Chris Ramsey, someone that me and Richard have, uh have, have, have spoken to quite a few times before. We know we know, Chris. Um, and how much of a mentor and an inspiration has Chris been for you at QPR?
3: Yeah, Chris, for me, is hugely inspirational. And um, if it wasn't for Chris, I feel that I perhaps wouldn't have got the opportunity to come in and volunteer initially Right at, at the club. And I say that from a place of really struggling to... To gain access to to the professional game and maybe it's because i haven't been in football for a long time uh, i'm not as, as well connected with the, with with people within the game and why would i be because i don't come from that field
4: yeah it's, yeah. it's
3: a field that I, I came into later in my life so fortunately for me i'd met chris originally in 2014 at saint george's park we were on a panel and we spoke I didn't have my B license then because I passed that in 2015. So one of the things he said to me which really stuck, and that was, whatever you do, go and get the experience on the grass and then and, and ensure that you have the qualifications to be in a position to be able to a- apply for a job.
2: Mm.
3: And it was very much about you need to be good. Make sure you're good and don't rush. Yeah. So I then happened to meet him again in 2016 at Troy Townsend's Raise Your Game event. And this was in April because we were both mentoring. And I simply asked him, Oh, how are you doing? And he said, Oh, what are you up to now? And I was working at Middlesex at the Girl Center of Excellence at the time a centre manager, but we were folding because it was when there was a transition of the Centre of Excellences becoming regional talent clubs in the girls' pathway. So Middlesex didn't get a license to become a regional talent club. So I shared that with him and he said, Well, I haven't got any jobs at QPR, but you can come in and volunteer. And I was to in and fro in at the time about whether I applied to jobs to become a coach at a regional talent club, which I was actively looking at. Um, or now that I've spoken to Chris, do I, do I take a risk? And, and I decided to take the risk and I would be at the club all the time. I was, I was man marking him wherever he was. I, I, I went. So if he was <laughs> coaching the under 18s, yeah. I was, I was there. Like it was literally going one-on-one like and, a proper
0: John Terry job, marking at a corner.
2: It, <laughs>
3: it, 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 and do you know what? That helped me to accelerate yes. my understanding of
2: mm.
3: what does a what does an academy look like? What are the different departments? What do what do people do? Pretty much how I learned about a school in terms of mm. how an educate how that is set up. That's what I needed to do because I soon realised that this is unfamiliar grounds, and I think. Uh, having the humility to be able to say I'm not very good at this I don't know this but I need to learn it is really important because that then allows you to 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 grow and to go and find out so I asked Chris whenever there were any in services any CPDs any meetings and I was allowed could I could I attend and he was great he said Jen no problem um but With the under-18s, it was very much, but you need to stand on the side. Paul Furlong was leading the session. Don't ask any questions to begin with. And only if he asks you to do something, do you do it. So (laughs) initially, I wasn't even the cone picker. I was just picking up chalk on my feet by standing on the (laughs) sidelines. That's all I was doing. And that then led gradually, because I was there all the time, so I would get there at 10 in the morning. I would leave at 8 or half 8 at night because I'd want to see everything from the under-18s right the way to the under-9s. And then on a Friday, I'd go and see a development centre. So what that meant was I had to really plan and structure my week yeah, because I still needed to earn money. So I was doing supply teaching. I was delivering uh, one-to-one tuition. I was delivering for show races on the red card and trying to make sure that I earned enough To allow me to go and volunteer. So I started off by doing about 20 hours of volunteering a week, Uh, kind of then was still doing between 15 to 20 hours. And about a few months later, so come September, Chris said to me, Oh, we've got a change of staff and you're going to start with the under nines. And I thought, wow. I asked him, What do you mean I've got a proper job? (laughs) (laughs) He was like, you're starting next week and that really? you know the rest really? the rest is history i started with the under nines um but as well in my first season um because actually before i got the actual academy job in the under nines gary Caser, uh, who's our head of recruitment yeah appointed me to work in the development centers so um it was then kind of having a conversation with chris to say you know I've also got this but what I really wanted to do was to continue my I needed to accelerate my learning so I did the development center once a week and then did the academy four times a week so I was there all the time Mm -hmm. and then uh, what I needed to try and do is negotiate day work because to allow me um, and I guess this is you know for for any coaches who who, who are listening that if you're working part-time you need to be able to be in another job that allows you to get to training on time yes. because you need to get there before you can set up. So what I needed to do, now fortunately for me, there was, I, I went back to do some supply in, a, in the Hindu faith school actually that I originally taught in and he the head teacher allowed me to finish at 2 o'clock just because of the way that their timetable worked. Now what that meant was I could then get to the training ground it ready before the session started
4: mm. so i
3: was able to earn some money in the day and then i had the academy work as a part-time role to top that up um and then you know i made sure that i was still there so if if for example if there was a day where i didn't have day work i'd i'd still go there early doors i'd it if the 23s were playing games over at uh, Harlinson, which is the other training site, I'd make sure I'd go and watch and learn from Paul Hall and Andy Impey. Um, Whenever Les was there, I'd speak to Les. And it, what, what the great thing about QPR is that it's not only diverse, but it's very open. Yeah. And I feel being under Chris and also learning a lot from Alex Carroll, our academy director, um, with regards to operations and how that part of the academy works, um it, it has has been great and that what's important is you yourself understand and realize where you want to go with it and you may not know that straight away but because i came into it a lot later in my life i pretty much did know yeah based on just life experiences that and 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 the thing with chris he he's he's very honest if you're not good he'll let you know
2: uh, if yes. you are good
3: he'll also <laughs> he'll also let you know mm. so he I mean look it wasn't it, I know that my job was definitely not tokenism um, yeah. and I know that the volunteering hours and and being under his wing learning from him and, and the senior coaches asking questions get, getting to know his philosophy like at the back of my hand because those were the things that he wanted he wanted somebody who he can help grow and develop. and he, yeah. he when I got the job, and he was honest about it, and and I'm honest about it too. I wasn't the best coach when mm. I got that job because you, you know it, and and why should I be because I'm not an end product mm. But what I did have was the qualifications, and I was able to do the job that he wanted me to do. what he then what he wanted from me was somebody who was coachable, moldable, and yeah. adaptable. Yeah. Are you open to learning? And and he saw that, and he, and he was honest about that too, and said, if you know, if learn, listen. Uh, I want you to take your time, and, I, and but I, I want you to be good, and I'll make sure that you're good. And, and for me, it's I took you know I've taken that with both hands, and and I believe that he can make me good and make me better, mm. because I see him as one of the best developers in the country, not yeah. just of players but of wow. people yeah and i can see how much i've grown and accelerated as a coach as a person in the four years that i've been there so i'm i feel honored that you know i have him uh, as my mentor and yeah. the only difference to i guess being full time in comparison to part time is that i have greater access with being able to be in the environment all day without yeah. the fear of not being able to earn money in the day. yes, mm. And and I feel that that's almost eliminated that stress and pressure. So being in the environment all day means that um, I have access to all these, you know, all these opportunities, but I still will make sure that, you know, um, I'm open to the learning and watching some of the other, the other guys taking the sessions, um, calling chris and uh, speaking to chris to to get you know to to guide me and help me with strategies and one of the things we spoke about was well where do i see myself but more yeah. so where does he see me <laughs> yeah. uh, which 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 was you know and he said that you let's look at where your strengths lie and and my strengths are in um st- strategic direction operations and yes. that's where uh, learning from both Alex and Chris is important because I start my A license this month, although virtually. Um,
2: yeah.
3: uh, so, um, you know, I'm, 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 looking forward to that part of my journey. Uh, I'm looking forward to going into the fifth season at the club um, and, and growing and developing as a coach, but equally uh, my role has evolved where, as well as overseeing the foundation phase over the last two years, uh, Chris and Alex have given me numerous projects to do within the club mm. whether um, whether it's to do with scheduling across all the age groups, whether it's to, to help Chris with planning across uh, like the 9s to the 14s uh, organising cover and, you know, liaising with staff it, all of those things are part and parcel of developing me into where I want to be which which is around overseeing all the phases or perhaps um, an assistant role as a you know uh, in the capacity of some operational work or eventually yeah. assistant to you know being an academy manager
2: mm. and
3: those experiences have come from I guess my traineeship of when I was in education yeah and yeah. being a deputy and then you know qualifying as a head and, and I understand where my strengths are and it's so competitive. Within the professional game, that there are one very few jobs, as as it is. Yeah. It's then looking at from those jobs, what job would you be able to do, and realistically, yeah, what, yeah. be able to do. What can you do. do? Yeah. Yeah,
2: Agree and then that cuts
3: Exactly, and then when you because that becomes so narrow, it's really important as coaches that you actually are humble enough to go actually that that's where my strengths are and that's going that's going to keep me in the game well, because you want and, and, go on sorry
1: i was i was just going to say i think from every everything you've said there it's it, it even going back to your um your previous work in school and and you've just you've uh, called it your apprenticeship you know how you um uh you worked in schools and and learned how to educate young people and everything we've spoken about is basically about um Continual improvement or continual development, um, and I think there's there's a lot of crossover between what you're talking about and then what we'd actually be saying to players as well. So some of the skills that have have uh, helped you and stood you in good stead, are things like being coach uh, coachable, um, open, honest, hardworking, willing to learn, humble, all of those things. Knowing you're not the finished product, and I think it's really interesting because we speak to young players all of the time and. They're the things that we that we ask for and seek out in young players. Yeah. Are you coachable? Are you willing to learn? Are you humble? You know, and it's, this is where I think football's so powerful. Sport in general, but I think obviously we're all, we're all in football. So we'll say football's number one yeah. <laughs> um, in, in terms of, well, you know, you work with young players, we work with young players, and we're always asking them, well, look, could you, could you learn this? Could you develop here? And then also, uh, even just on what you said there look uh if you're an aspiring coach or or, or aspiring to be in football in any in, in any field it could be sports journalism it could be you want to go into uh, into physio it could be strength and conditioning you might want to go into a coach or maybe a more operational role um you have to be open and honest enough and say where do i strengths lie and it's exactly the same um the same skills in that in that regard that self analysis or self analysis when you're a young player and say well i want to play number 10 yeah but if, if that's not where your strengths lie, <laughs> where do your strengths lie? You know What are you? You're slow, you're fast, you're strong, you're weak, uh, you're skillful, you're a good passer, do you have great vision or a great engine? Where do your strengths lie? What could you do? And w- where are you open to learning? And I think there's so many transferable skills that you've mentioned in your career as, a, as an educator and now a football coach and a football, um, you know, person in football at a professional level and in everything you've spoken about in from mental health and wellness that are, that are transferable skills we learn as young players and if we can continue to develop those if we can if we can create a spark in a player or uh, a habit for continual improvement uh, then they can take their passion for football in uh, as many different directions as they want and i think it's really fascinating to hear very inspirational
3: yeah no i i completely agree with you in that and i that has to come from the, the the coaches and the people that either you as adults or the young people are working with. yeah, and it's it's the understanding from coaches that the players you are working with with within the under nines to the you know to the under twenty uh, threes, they're developing. They are still developing, and yes, there's a transition from the 23s to the first team but they are not the end product. So, and and even the players playing in the first team, some of them are still they're still they're still developing, mm. because you've got a cross range. So I think that um, if if we want players to to reflect and to to look at um, challenges and view challenges as as a form of learning and growth, that. They will be inspired by the environment the coach creates because the coach has to allow them to do that. And if if you've got, for instance, an undermaturated player, that the the player needs time, but the player needs a coach who's going to give them time. Yeah. And and that's where I look at somebody like Chris, who uh, I would describe him as being visionary because it's it you need it's opportunity whether you're me as a coach. Or whether you're a player, so we must have some of the smallest players at our club. Hmm. And Chris sees beyond um, what's you know what's what's most obvious. So he will give players time. And yeah, maybe because he's 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 got he's seen the whole cycle when he was at Tottenham, and he's got a, um, experience to be able to to say actually I think he's got potential, but he needs time and and he's not afraid to say to parents um look I've, you know i think he's he's got something but we might have to play him across an age group just uh just because he's you know he's under or or yeah. whatever it might be he's not afraid to do that because he's so strong on his values and his beliefs um within within the philosophy and that that from him is no different to I guess how he's developing me. He's so he's so he he believes in what he's doing with me. And you know, he said to me, he's taking me on as, as one of his his projects. But that is no different. All the players, all the players are projects because they're all developing. They're all projects. None of them are finished articles.
1: Hmm. So And I think more... it's I think it's key what you said about um I really like that about the coach creating the environment. I think that's one of the messages we try and get across all of the time as well with our coaches. is um you know you can have this you can have different philosophies and different styles of play and different um different uh theories on how we should set up and and things like this but it's more about setting an environment that creates opportunities for growth so um it's really refreshing to hear that such a prominent figure in the game has obviously been an inspiration on yourself and he's and he's setting this this approach and this environment right the way through a top club like uh, like qpr where um players of all statures and sizes and abilities and, and maturation levels are allowed to to grow and develop in an environment that that encourages that that's really refreshing and that's i think that is a i think we, we mentioned it earlier about how slow football is to change sometimes but i I certainly see that's one change from academies over the last i would say decade is this approach um, uh, becoming more and more prominent of uh, the environment being key I think we are now stepping into that direction where where players there's more time for young players of different Mm. of different uh, statures so I think that's uh, well long may it continue
0: Well, I was going to say as well there Richard it's the the environment we can see change for the players but as Manisha said and you've just picked up on the environment for coaches to be able to learn as well and and Manisha you talking about your relationship with Chris I don't mind saying I mean he's never going to let me live it down but I feel like i have quite a similar relationship with richard in the sense of uh, <laughs> mental me- mentorship um you know and 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 something that you said that chris said earlier um you know how um about to make sure that you know don't don't rush into things and i think it's so prevalent to, to nowadays i mean if it's one thing that i get asked more than often more more often than not um you know people see the players that myself and richard work with um professionals and academy players and and i get asked this question more most often it's how how can i be a coach that works with these players and and the message is always the same that, you know, you've got to get your experience and you've got to learn from others. And and I'm very, very grateful that I was, um, you know, I remember when I first met Richard about five years ago now and somebody had told me about um this this independent academy called Round World and this coach called Richard. Um that if I have really good players that um that I coach in my Sunday league team, that if there's really good players, I should send them down to Richard and um and you hear that a lot. And um, I thought, well I'll go down and see what it's like and and I couldn't believe that the level of quality that Richard had put on in the sessions and And development. And like you with the volunteering, I think for about two, three months, I just went down to watch Richard Sessions and observe and just learn and almost be a shadow and just get the experience. And and I think it's so important to have people like Richard and like you're saying about Chris that are are willing to take people that perhaps aren't as experienced or have have a lot of room to grow, um, to learn themselves. It's all well and good saying that players need to develop, but coaches need to develop as well. And and for me what you're saying with your now your relationship with chris it, it certainly hits home for me
3: yeah no he you know it, uh, chris for me like i said is um it is is a prominent figure in 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 my development and in the the game needs more people like him like yeah. les like alex yeah. who are forward thinking who are visionary and are willing to see beyond um Any protected characteristic, and yeah. that's not just for coaches but all staff and and all players and and the more we can the more we can do that, the more we can create diversity because diversity can bring diverse thinking
2: yeah and yes
3: we don't want all the players in the team to be the same. you no. want different types of players that should be no different to what your your makeup of staff looks
2: like,
0: yeah yeah indeed indeed and richard i hope you appreciate that's going to be the first and last time i give you a compliment on this podcast (laughs) (laughs) i expect anything else mate. yeah yeah manisha i'm i'm wary of taking up too much of your time i mean this this chat has just flown by it's been so captivating and and really inspiring um i just want to say thank you for for giving up your time to speak to us um you know and best of luck for your ufa license no doubt you'll smash it um yeah, thank you for giving up your time to talk to us.
3: No, thank you very much. It's been um, it's been a pleasure to share. I think uh, if it can inspire somebody out there, then um, then you know I think that it, uh, it, we've we've done our job because uh, we want more people um, being open about some of the topics and subjects we, we've we've mentioned and and spoken you know and spoken about.
1: Well, I'm sure will inspire. It's been a, it's been inspirational for us and a real eye opener and, and educational as well. So I'm sure it'll be an inspirational um, tool for for lots of people out there as well. And thanks again for coming on.
0: Yeah, definitely. All that's left for me to do is say thanks again to Manisha, thanks to Richards, uh, thanks to you guys, the listeners, um, and we'll see you soon.